Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit TheOldMillPress.com. And by listeners like you. Hi, this is animator Owen Cloddy, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's in theaters, and what's up in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Goh, longtime musician and Disney Marvel Star Wars fan and pop culturist. And you can email me, aljohn, at skullrockpodcast.com. Bonjour! I'm Dave Bossert artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm broadcasting from Paris, the city of lights in France. Uh, If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Well, Al John, here we are. We've got another great show. We've got Randy Cartwright, who's a story artist and animator. Uh, he has some great stories to tell us. We this is going to be part one of his interview, and we I, I'm telling you, he's going to talk about Eric Larson, the early training program back in the '70s. Um, he's got some great stories to tell, and I can't wait to get to that. But first, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's nice to hear from you, Virtual Dave. <laughs> For our listeners, Dave is uh, in France right now, so we've recorded, pre-recorded some segments for this show. I uh, hope you find it entertaining uh, as we kind of ride with the AI Dave, if you will, the artificial intelligence uploaded into Skynet. But uh, Dave, I hope you're having fun there in France. I hope you're being able to uh, take in some sights and have some great food. At least that's what I hope you are. Yes, plenty of brie and wine there all you go. around. <laughs> all right, Dave. Thanks, buddy. Anyway, you can email me to uh, at aljohn at skillrockpodcast.com, as I mentioned. And you know, looking forward to Randy Cartwright and hearing stories uh, from him, as we usually do every single week here on the show. If you like what you're hearing so far, if you uh, are interested in more of what's going on in animation, film, as well as our take on pop culture streaming, feel free to subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts uh, on your favorite podcatcher and give us those five-star reviews. We certainly would appreciate it. Now, this week, we don't have a whole lot because it's, like I said, it's just me, but... I'll tell you what I have been watching this week, and what's awesome is Spider-Man. 
I absolutely really, really enjoyed Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. And it is one amazing film. And we'll talk about the film in just a little bit in terms of our um, story coverage of what's going on. It's doing really well at the box office. And I have to say that uh, I gave this a 9 out of 10. It's really, really good. I really liked the film. And it's the second film in terms of trilogy. So go back and watch, you know, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Check this film across the Spider-Verse in theaters right now. It's amazing. Uh, Here's a little bit of a preview. Miles Morales catapults through the multiverse where he counters a team of spider people charged with protecting its very existence. When the heroes clash on how to handle a new threat, Miles must redefine what it means to be a hero. And this is written by uh, Lord Miller, um, great writers, of course. They have been known to write some excellent films and, as well as Lego uh, film. And I think you all are going to like it. And I love the fact that we have uh, awesome um, Shem- Shamik Moore, who's doing the voice of Miles Morales, Spider-Man. Oscar Isaac is tw- uh, Spider-Man 2099. Haley Seinfeld as Spider-Woman, a.k.a. Spider-Gwen. And there are so many great things about this film. First off, animation style is off the chart, popping off the comic book page. Every hero in their own respective universes coming together brings together an amazing art style. Uh, that I think if you love the first movie, you're absolutely going to love this. Uh, once again, it's a comic book come to life, which I really appreciate. <clears throat> and then the music as well. It's uh, so well done. It enhances the experience going from scene or universe to universe. And it's done very seamlessly. And I really love it. So uh, the sound, everything about it, the voice acting is very good. So if you like the trailer for this movie, if you've seen the previous movie, please go on out and check it out. You will not be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. If you're listening to this show, you definitely won't be disappointed. I guarantee it. Skull Rock Podcast. Ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Well, here we are. Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse swings to a huge 20, 120.5 million box office opening. Little Mermaid docked at number two in its second weekend. While the horror pick Pokemon is looking for third place finish with 12.3 million. Not too shabby. The sequel for Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Um, the sequel opened up to 120.5 million in North America, well ahead of expectations it's the third biggest opening ever for an animated film, as well as a best ever for Sony Animation, not adjusted for inflation. It's also the second biggest opening of 2023 to date, this movie, which easily has come in at number one, boast a both stellar review and audience scores. I think it was at like 99 Rotten Tomatoes, uh, IMDb, IMDb, I mean, it's done really, really well. So... Uh, congratulations to Sony Animation. You've done really well. Now, how does it compare against the Super Mario Brothers movie? Well, I guess uh, only time will tell. I mean, that's uh, 
pretty hard nut to crack, <laughs> being that it is the number one animated film of all time, the Super Mario Brothers. But um should be very, very interesting to see how this fares. So uh, anyway, Disney's The Little Mermaid docked in at second place in its sophomore weekend with an estimated $40.6 million, um, with a total haul of $186.2 million. Uh, the live-action Mermaid fell about 58% over last week. And so pretty cool stuff indeed. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 still is doing well with Fast X in its fifth weekend. Um, doing really well. So anyway... Go out there, check out Spider-Man. You're going to love it. Now, in terms of movies and streaming and the writer's strike, uh, there has been some news there. According to Hollywood Reporter, the agreement includes gains in wages and benefits for streaming residuals, uh, AI protections, and more, and comes as the Writers Guild of America remains on strike. So there's a little bit of headway there. Uh, but they reach a tentative deal with studios and streamers. Uh, the agreement between the union and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers gains in wages, benefits, including residuals. And the union leaders will need to lay out what they perceive to be the gains and compromises in the contract to the members over the next few days before members ultimately participate in a, a ratification vote. There's no date for the vote yet. The tentative agreement will be submitted to the DGA's national board at a special meeting set for Tuesday. So the new deal arrives after the DGA and the AMPTP spent all day uh, Saturday at the negotiating table. We've conducted a truly historic deal, said John Avnet, the chair of the DGA's negotiations committee. It provides a significant Improvement for every director, assistant director, unit production manager, associate director uh, in our guild. And uh, there were advances made on wages, streaming residuals, etc. So we'll see how this plays out. In the meantime, Hollywood is still kind of grinded to a halt. Uh, although some projects have been able to continue filming as there are no, uh, they're trying to employ no changes uh, to any of the dialogue or script. So that's how they're kind of circumnavigating that. Tommy Hilfiger launches new line of Disney collection to celebrate Disney 100. Yes, it's hard to believe. Uh, Disney celebrating 100 years as a company. And the Tommy Hilfiger collection pays homage to that. Uh, designs combine traditional images of Disney's Mickey and Friends with a new manga-inspired art artwork adorning an assortment of apparel that captures Tommy Hilfiger's perfected college prep style. And uh, it's really neat. You should check it out. There are cardigans, uh, full pullover sweaters, um, uh, all kinds of great kind of collegiate looks, as Tommy Hilfiger is known for, as mentioned. Uh, Oxford shirts, skirts, shorts, all kinds of things there. And the art style is really cool. It is anime looking. It is a little bit different. You know, and I'm just wondering if that was the right thing. I mean, I guess... Uh, they wanted something like that. There are some nods to like classic Mickey Mouse, um, 80s style Mickey Mouse, not pie eyed Mickey or anything like that. But there are some really cool designs, and I would have everyone check out Tommy.com or Shop Disney app to check out all the brand new merch from this new Tommy Hilfiger collection. Now, speaking more about Disney, 
Hocus Pocus 3 is in development. And this was written at Variety uh, earlier in the week. So a third Hocus Pocus film is officially in develop, said uh, Pictures President Sean Bailey. In a profile with the New York Times, Bailey states that, yes, Hocus Pocus 3 is happening. It comes after the success of the 2022 sequel, Hocus Pocus 2, that went to streaming there on Disney+. Plus. It became one of the most original film, uh, the most watched original film for Disney+, Plus within the first three days of release. That's exactly what they're looking for, gang. So if you want to support a film, TV show, streamer, whatever, uh, make sure you watch it within three days of the release to make sure it counts. All right, so please check that out. That is so important. And in the regrets for this week, Jackie O, the former Wild and Outcast member, dies at the young age of 32. She shares three children with partner DC Young Fly, whom she met on the Nick Cannon-created series. Uh, Wild and Out was a variety show on MTV. Uh, very sad to see her passing very, very, very young. And um, we send our uh, thoughts and our prayers out to her and her family at this time and her fans. Very, very sad indeed. Also, this week, Barry Newman, the star of The Vanishing Point, and Petrocelli dies at the age of 92. Uh, according to Hollywood Reporter, he got to drive very, very fast in the Richard C. Saffron cult classic Fear is in the Key 2. So, Vanishing Point, he was in Petrocelli. Uh, he passed away May 11th of Natural Causes in New York. So please go out there and check it out. Uh, Vanishing Point was shot over eight weeks and has become an admired cult classic with Steven Spielberg calling it one of his favorite movies. So there you go. Please check that out. Also, it regrets this week, Cynthia Wheel, uh, Grammy-winning lyricist who had hits with husband Barry Mann, died at the age of 82. Uh, according to the Hollywood Reporter, she wrote such hits as You've Lost That Loving Feeling and On Broadway, just amazing classic hits from Cynthia. Um, she also helped co-write um, Walking in the Rain and dozens of other hits. So please check out her songs and her, uh, I think, On Broadway is my favorite. You Lost That, Lost that Loving Feeling, one of those great classics. So uh, definitely go out there and stream those songs and get... Uh, uh, you know, get that feeling, get that awesome hit maker feeling that uh, she was able to bring to some of these great songs. I love it. Great classic songs. Anyway, it is now time for our featured interview of the week. So sit back and relax as we pull up Randy Cartwright, an amazing story artist and animator, and some awesome stories right here on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, we've got another great guest this week. As always, we've got animator Randy Cartwright. He's also a story artist, a bit of a historian. Uh, I, I don't know. We could put so many labels on Randy Cartwright. Randy, <laughs> welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Hello. Hello there. <laughs> It's great to have you on the show. And, you know, one of the questions I always ask our guests right out of the gate is how did you get into animation? Oh, well, that was when I was um, when I, actually when I was in the sixth grade, a friend did a little flip book on the corner of his notepad 
and it kind of intrigued me. I went out that night, bought some little pads of paper and started doing little uh, arrows shooting across and bombs exploding. And uh, and next day I went out and bought some more pads and filled them up and filled, and I kind of just fell in love with the idea of making drawings move. And for like several years after that, until about uh, the ninth grade, I was just doing filling sketchbooks uh, with little animated scenes on flip books. I had about a hundred of them, I think. And, and, and was that, uh, you know, by doing that, did that really sort of push you down uh, the path of becoming an artist? Uh, yeah, I had I had uh, I had some cartoon characters that I had developed had before that a year, year or two before that. And little, you know, do real little like um, comic book comics gags with them. Uh, but then when I discovered flip books, I started adding them, drawing them into those and. Uh, soon I, after after doing it, I, soon I discovered that the cartoons I saw on TV were kind of the same thing. And I soon realized uh, that's going to be my career for the rest of my life. So when I was in sixth grade, I decided I was going to be an animator. And I didn't change my mind the way most kids do when they decide they want to be animators. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's funny when you talk to, to little kids, they're like, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a policeman, I want to be an astronaut, those kinds of things. I guess kids today, they want to be influencers as well. But uh, <laughs> uh, but oftentimes those things evolve over time, but it didn't for you. You, you really focused in on wanting to do animation. What did yep. you do when you got into high school? How did you continue to pursue that? In high school, uh, my family got an eight millimeter camera. So I started doing, I got a little rubber Gumby and started making little Gumby cartoons and uh, and animating little clay figures and doing all kinds of little things. I tried, tried animating my characters. I drew a whole bunch of drawings of a little scene and I colored them and cut them out and made them all so I could animate them. And I filmed the whole thing, but I knew nothing about lenses so I had shot it about one foot away from the artwork. And when I got it back, it was so blurry. You couldn't see anything at all. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that you must have been crestfallen. Yeah, well, I learned a lot of learning. <laughs> and also, I did one one scene where I had a little clay figure. And I tried doing the, decided I'm going to have some dialogue. So I wrote some dialogue for him. And I animated the mouth. And put it, when I got it back, I put it together. And it looked terrible. What I had done was for each letter of the word, I opened the mouth and then closed the mouth. The next letter, open the mouth, close the mouth. And next letter, open the mouth. So for each letter, there were like it was an open and closed mouth. So his mouth was just fluttering without any. Re really fast, right? It was yeah, just yeah. doing right. one of those. Yeah, no connection to the dialogue <laughs> at all. But I, I learned from that, too. Yeah, I I, I was going to say the, those kind those kinds of experiments are are really uh, stepping stones. You're learning. Yep. Yeah, yeah. uh, uh, and um, in my senior year, I started to animate. I got an idea for a little short film and started to animate it. Uh, and it took me five years to finish it. I continued animating it all through college. I started out as a drama major, but then realized I couldn't draw everything that was in my head, so I switched to an art major. Uh, and then went to uh, to UCLA, which had a one of the few animation departments at the time, and uh, finished my film there as a student film. And uh, that was... Uh, uh, UCLA had all the equipment, 
to uh, actually finish it, which is, you know, the old cameras and stuff like that were really expensive. You couldn't buy one at home. Right. Hard to, to do that. So anyway, I finished my film. It went out to different film festivals and I won some awards and things like that. So that was, and, and what was that film called? It's called Room and Board. Uh, and actually, at the time, actually, I was working at Disneyland. I was a Disneyland character for three years because uh, I, I I grew up in, in Orange County in Fullerton, which is about six miles from Disneyland. So yeah. I got a job there uh, as a Disney character. I did Dopey and, and Practical Pig and Pluto and well, a lot of different characters over the years for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, But um, while I was working there, I... Um, uh, I had done my film and I've been working on a portfolio and thought someday I'm going to, you know, get into Disney and try to take it to them, try to get in. Well, I was working there. All of a sudden, one of the supervisors came over and said, your mother called. She says it's an emergency. You better go talk to her. So I went over, ran over to the phone, picked her up, called my mom. And my mom said, the Disney studio just called. What? <laughs> out of the blue they had called and they wanted to talk to you so i called back and i talked to don Ducklaw, who was you know as you know was head of the animation department at the time yeah he told me one of the artists uh at the studio i think it was ted berman but i'm not sure um saw my film in a film festival and told uh don Ducklaw about it they contacted UCLA and found out my home address and asked if I wanted to bring in a portfolio. Wow. So out of the blue, Disney called me and invited me in. And, and did you tell them that you were working at Disneyland? Uh, I did, but it didn't really have any connection to it. it was just my chance. Didn't, didn't make a difference. <laughs> didn't make a difference. But um, so I took my portfolio in, showed it. Um, and to Eric Larson, who's, as you know, one of the nine old men who sure. was head of the training program, he looked at it and said, okay, you've got a good start, but you need to work on some things, work on this, this, this. And he sat down and drew over my drawing, showed me some th ways to improve my drawing. So I went home, worked on the portfolio, did some more drawings, then took it back to him and showed it. And he said, okay, that's better now. You need to work on this and this and this. And this. and so I went home and did some more and I took it back to him again. Yes, now you need to work. And it took me seven portfolios. Over, uh, over what period of time? How many months? About a year. About uh, a year, okay. About a year, I guess. Uh, seven portfolios. And I was about ready to to give up. Uh, my sixth portfolio I was about ready to give up. I was thinking, I don't know if he's ever going to accept me uh and i went to another studio uh that was and talked to um uh, willie ito who was uh, oh yeah we've had yeah. willie ito on as a guest uh, yeah, I saw a that. month or yeah. two ago yeah. yeah well he was working on one of the uh movie for another studio and so i took my portfolio in and showed it to him he looked at it and said wow you know you should take this to Disney. This is the sort of stuff they like. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back and I took it to, to Eric one more time. And he finally said, okay, I think you're ready. We'll submit it to the review board. And they submitted that plus my film to the review board. And they brought you in as a trainee. And they brought me in. Yep. Yep. Right away. So, And, and now when you started as a trainee, who else was uh, training in the program with you? Oh, uh, let's see. There was, um, well, Glenn, actually, when I got there, Glenn had been there for just a little while, Glenn Keane. Um, 
Dale Bear. Uh, and well, actually, while I was working at Disneyland, I did I did Tigger for an event at the studio. It was my first time at the studio, and um, uh, during the break, we had a big break while they were showing films to all the movie distributors. And so I wandered around the studio. Well, I had seen a few weeks before a presentation by Eric Larson and Andy Gaskill, who's one of the young animators at the time. And uh, I, afterwards, I talked with Andy a little bit about the studio. Well, while I was walking around the studio that time, I ran into Andy. And he recognized me and said, hey, want to come down and see Ollie Johnson's room? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, so he went down, he dropped some things off in Ollie's room. Ollie wasn't there, but I got a chance to look at it. And then he took me up to the trainee room. And in the trainee room, uh, there was a uh, there's a little room on the side uh, that had a little mo had a moviola. It was running. There were somebody was looking at something. We went in there to see what was going on. And there's this guy with with red hair and a red mustache, and he was looking at a film of Cruella Deville that I'd never seen from the movie. Uh, and apparently it was his personal test. That turned out to be Ron Clements. Oh, wow. Okay. And Ron was there doing, finishing his personal test on Cruella DeVille. And uh, he seemed very shy, but um, I got to know him a little bit there. And uh, then I went away and like uh, maybe several months later, I was accepted into the studio. So I came in and ran into Ron, of course, again, and Andy was there uh tad stones was there um of course don bluth and uh gary goldman and john pomeroy were all yeah. there uh -huh. you know, dale bear uh, was there too i think i was like the 14th person maybe to, to uh, come into the training program yeah i think yeah. ron husband had been there about six months before me okay and, and uh uh this is this is really all uh kind of prior to the character animation program uh uh forming up at cal arts uh yes uh at the time when i was doing my personal tests um the uh john lassiter and Jerry Reese and uh, Alex Mann were working on Xeroxing animation to take for the first year of the CalArts class. So they'd have reference that they could look at uh, of animation. So the three of them were, were interns doing that at the time. So uh, they were all going to go to CalArts. I was, I actually asked Eric if I should go to wait and go to CalArts. And he said, no, 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 you're almost ready. You can just <laughs> keep throwing your portfolio. So I got in just about, just before CalArts started. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and I, I think that the character animation program up at CalArts really formulated because they realized that they needed more than just what Eric could do in the training yeah. tra training uh uh department at Disney. Yeah, they had uh, Jack Hanna uh, ran the first year of it I think and the uh, first several years he he was actually yeah. head of the program when I was up there. Yeah. And, and Bob McRae and uh, Ken yeah, Anderson yeah. and Elmer Plummer and Tiki mm -hmm. and you know yeah. it was a, a good group. And when I so when I I did my Training. We did. You had one month to do a personal test of anything you want. Eric is there to help you every day. Uh, then it's reviewed by the review board. If they accept it, you get another month to do one more test, and you do that. 
And if uh, they're like that, you are brought in as a full-time rough in-betweener. And you start your career from there. And I made it through my first tests, uh, first two tests. And so uh, I was assigned to John Palmer, actually, as his rough animator on The Rescuers. Wow. Yeah, he was doing Penny. All he was doing was the main animator on Penny. And John Mus or John, La um, John Pomeroy was doing uh, some of the other animation uh, of, of Penny. And so I, I did in-betweens for him uh, for you know several months after that. So, so you essentially were part of Ollie's uh, unit. Yeah, kind of. Except then, um, Glenn Keane was Ollie's assistant uh -huh. uh, at that time. But then Glenn got started getting animation. They moved him up to animator, and so there was an empty spot. So I was brought in. I was uh, brought in as Ollie's in betweener then. Yeah. So for a while on Rescuers, I was in between the Penny drawings for Ollie and got to know him, got to work with him directly, which was really amazing. Hey, he was a nice guy. Oh, yeah. 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 And, yep. and and he and he and, and Frank Thomas, I mean, they were in the twilight of their animating career. What, yep. what, what, what do you think prompted them to decide to retire? Well, the, in uh, when we worked on Fox and Hound a little later. It was started by Ollie and Frank and, and Wooly were all, you know, heading up the production. But about in the middle of it, uh, they, let's see, was it before? Yeah, no, yeah. About the middle of it, Ron Milley decided that it really should be more run by the, the younger staff. And yeah. in, basically kind of did, didn't really fire, but kind of encouraged everybody, all the older guys to to leave. And so. Really? Uh, yeah. They, they were kind of encouraged to move on i don't think they really wanted to at least woolly i don't think wanted to right he was you know kind of moved on he went then moved with uh, mel shaw and they started to develop some other projects yeah uh, but yeah it was taken over by art stevens and ted berman uh and rick rich to take over the film uh on fox and hound yeah and then Ollie, John, um, Ollie and Frank, of course, were doing work, planning on doing their book, and we're yeah. and started working on their their yeah. book on animation. I, I'm curious uh, when you were just a step back before you got hired at Disney, but like when mm -hmm. you were in high school, did you ever find any books on animation? Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and curious which which books did you have in your library? Well, uh, of course, I had the the. The one from the the what was it the, the, Walt, Walt, the Walter the Walter Foster book oh, yeah right? the Walter Foster that was yeah. easy to find and everybody yeah. had that. it was the best one there were like some 1920s animation books that had really really, really weird you know well the round head characters and the I let my library had some of those wow uh, there was the book the art of animation the Disney ones kind of based on Sleeping Beauty the Bob Thomas it, book yeah I checked yeah. that out from the library took a look at it uh, oh and also at the time Disneyland had an exhibit the art of animation exhibit was that that book was based on and a lot of that artwork the actual artwork was in uh, at Disneyland every every time I went to Disneyland, I would tell my parents, you go on rides. I'll spend some time in here. And I spent like several hours. And where did, they where, where, where did they have the art of animation display at Disneyland? 
It was in Tomorrowland, right wow. across right across the way from uh, the Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Really, it's kind of where the the Circarama film was later on. Okay, some of that area, but yeah, and I met uh, Roy Williams, the big musketeer there. He did drawings for people. He was sometimes in there. <laughs> I got got a drawing of Mickey Mouse and Pluto from him. That that's awesome. Yeah, but that was really amazing. But that, that book, I, I checked out from the library, and as soon as it gets got due, I'd go and renew it. And I'd renew it over and over and over, so no one else had a chance to see it. It was with me for like a, a couple of years. <laughs> That's fantastic. So so Frank and Ollie uh, move on and, and write their uh, seminal book, The Illusion of Life, mm -hmm. which even today I think is sort of the Bible for animation. Yeah, and they uh, one thing uh, they picked me for one of the pictures. <laughs> I'm like the last one of the last pictures in the book of me staring at an empty page of uh, animation paper and an empty <laughs> sheet of paper, uh, kind of. Yeah, but I, I'm kind of documented in there as a young guy forever now. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. That is yeah. really awesome. That was now, amazing. It, now from uh uh from from rescuers uh 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 you went on to do uh Peach Dragon before Fox and the Hound. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I was I, I was brought on by um Don Bluth actually picked me to start. I was one of the first young animators to work on Peach Dragon and that I was given enough animation to make full animator by the end of the movie and get credit, which which yeah. meant you had to do a hundred feet of animation. Yeah, hundred feet of animation. I got a little bit over a hundred feet, so I got an animator credit, and my name's floating there above background somewhere in the beginning of the movie. That's uh, awesome. A friend of mine, uh, Eric um, um, Ed Gombert, he did like ninety eight feet of animation and didn't get a credit oh my gosh are you <laughs> kidding me yeah, they couldn't the have thrown one. him one more scene of two or three feet yeah 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 wow anyway. but, but yeah, they, so, they, they were very strict on that uh, back yep. in those days yep yep so yeah so i, I made full animator on uh, pete's dragon and then uh, for a little bit i worked on the small one but then Ollie asked if I could join him on Fox and Hound and he explained that he's going to be retiring, he and Frank, and he, he wanted to work with me and have me kind of take over his assignments for Fox and Hound. Oh, uh, so a nice transition uh, for him out. And he yeah. and he cared enough that he wanted somebody to kind of follow in his footsteps. Yeah. So I, I got to... Uh, kind of do most of the animation for chief and the adult copper nice a lot of, well, it was too much for me to do all of it of course right. for the people that did it but yeah i got to do the the key scenes for a lot of those so, and uh and, and was there still a unit system you know uh, yes there, there was small units it was not real strict but yeah i had uh had in-betweeners uh so you had rebecca reese was my first rough in-betweener and then i had Joe Lanzicero, who became a vice president at uh, uh, WDI. I, I just did a first uh, interview with him last week, uh, and uh, you, we're, we're going to have a couple more about a lot of his Imagineering uh, uh, work. 
Yeah, well, ask him about Fox and Hound. He's a little <laughs> in between for me. That, <laughs> yeah, that's I still awesome. know Joe. He's a great guy. He's yeah, he's terrific. That's and then so I had great. another. I had another assistant. This guy called John Lasseter. Uh huh. Wow. When he first came in from Cal Arts, his first job was doing animation, uh, being my assistant. That's awesome. And I knew that he. I'd seen his per- personal tasks. I knew he had a lot of talent and a lot of feel for character. So he he actually never did any real in-betweening for me. I gave him some actual scenes of the little baby copper to actually animate right off the bat. So he got the chance to animate. And did he hit 100 feet on Fox and the Hound? No, he didn't. But uh, uh, John John was just starting out. Yeah. And John, actually, me, John and I both uh, kind of struggled with drawing. Some of the guys, I mean, a lot of the guys we know are just fantastic draftsmen. Just yeah. drawings just flow out of their pencil. For me, it was always work, and it was a struggle to really get drawings that I'm happy with. I had to do them over and over and over. And I, my, by the end of a day, my trash barrel would be filled with drawings that I didn't like. But, uh, yeah, so for me, it was never never – really smooth doing the drawing. That was a real, real challenge, but I just kept pushing at it because I, you know, I needed to do performances, what I was really, uh, what I felt my strength was. Yeah. I, you were able to capture the essence of the action and the performance. Uh, yeah. but, but as far as putting the characters on model, it was always yes. a, little, a little tough, right? Uh, and, and a lot of animators are like that. That's why yeah. uh, they get paired with somebody who's a great cleanup artist. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. But that was it was a really nice time. The studio was not really strict. They were really loose with us and we could have a lot of fun uh, doing crazy stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it was really not the big corporate machine that it is today. Right, right. I, I mean, you know, I often tell people you could count on one hand the production management. There, there was like maybe five people, you know, it was like, yeah. you know, the the head of the d- department, like Don, Don Duckwald or, or Ed uh, mm-hmm. later uh, and the secretary. Yep. And then you had a production manager, a production assistant, and you had Joe in the supply closet. Yeah. Joe Morris. Wow. Yeah, I have a, a a list of the staff, the whole staff for the rescuers. Yeah. 57 people. That, and that's who made that movie. That's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they were all... Uh, aside, aside from the ink and paint and, ink and paint camera, camera and all of that, yeah. that was different. That was a different... But animation-wise. Animation, the background artist, the story artist, there's 57 of us. That was it for the whole movie. 57. Isn't that amazing? Now we have, what, a thousand or something. I don't know how much. I I mean, you know something, it's absolutely crazy, and I don't even want to go off on a tangent, but there was, I think there's 80 or 90 uh, uh, production assistants you know, like PAs and, and and production coordinators and production supervisors right now. It, it's it, it's out of control. You know? yeah, and they come up, come up with so many charts and graphs that look at things all different ways. Back when back in those old days, they had Joanne who would sit there and have to once a week type up how much work each person had done, their their footage yeah. charts, and then send it out to everybody and you see where you are ranked, you know, if you're high or low this week for yeah, how much yeah. you've done. 
All I, yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it really is amazing how, how, how it's shifted away from the artist to this convoluted management process. You know, it, yeah. it's really stifling. It's stifling the creativity, I think. But but that's a whole nother conversation. Yes, I yes. want to stay positive. Yes. <laughs> so so you finished Fox and the Hound mm-hmm. and uh, and then you went on to Mickey's Christmas Carol. Uh, yes. Well, actually, first I went on to Black Cauldron. Oh, OK, I was doing some development work on Black Cauldron and I I had an image, an idea. Well, actually, Andreas had done a whole ton of different ideas for character designs for for the main characters for Cauldron. Right. There was a whole wall, a whole, whole hallway filled with his artwork of different examples. Well, I took some, one of his examples, which was more of a cartoony look than what they finally went with. And I did a little test of that, of Island Way. And uh, I showed it to... Uh, the producer, and he said, uh, it looks like Little Audrey. I don't want Little Audrey in the picture. Who's that, <laughs> and, Joe Hale? Yeah, Joe Hale. <laughs> and he, um, and I don't know, and so he moved me off onto story. I worked with John Musker for a while on a witches, the witches sequence. We did a version of that. They had a presentation of all the sequences to the whole department uh, at one time of the boards of what the way it was going. And uh, at the end, the witches sequence got the most positive reaction of all the sequences. So John and I were both taken off the sequence, split up, put on different things, and the sequence was dropped and given to someone else. That's the way they ran things on Black Cauldron. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anything that was good, they they wanted to get rid of because it, wow. it, I think I I have a feeling it kind of they kind of felt it threatened them. If someone else did something good, they didn't want that because it made them feel that the leaders felt like, oh, that, that they're doing better than me. I don't want that. Wow. So, wow. Anyway. Yeah, Black, that, by the way, Black Cauldron was, was my first picture at Disney. Ah, yes. but, but I came in as an in-betweener in the effects department. So, you know, I I was I, I was not privy to a lot of those, uh, uh, you know, those types of meetings. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I after that, I was par- paired with uh, Ron Clements, and we worked on a sequence together, doing storyboarding together on it. We presented it to the directors, and there was no reaction at all afterward, just silence. And then Joe Hale said, uh, you guys are on probation for this. And what? Really? We don't even know what that meant. <laughs> there was, <laughs> I mean, and at that point, after having those situations, I decided, yow, this is not a very good uh, situation. I think if there's a way to get off of this, I want to get off. So I went to talk to Ed Hansen, asked if there was something else I could go on to, and Mickey's Christmas Carol was starting up. So yeah. I moved off on to Mickey's Christmas Carol. And... Um, which turned out to be a, a really fun experience. It, basically, everybody that worked on it seemed to have a good time. Yeah. Bernie, the director, is such a such a nice guy who just passed away a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, and uh, really a, a, a very terrific person, and uh, and, and an enjoyable enjoyable one to work with. Yeah, always pleasant, yeah. always yeah. positive. Yeah, yeah, right. amazing. And and a really good story artist too. His drawings were just amazing. So anyway, 
so I, I worked on that. And then after that, I started to work on uh, Basil of Baker Street, which turned out to be Mouse Detective. Yeah. Final title. Uh, but then they had story problems. And so it, it, it had to take everybody off for a while until they got the story back together. I worked on uh, so a, a little thing for Disney for Disneyland, a little short thing, a, l- a little animated crane for uh, Tokyo Disneyland, uh, just little miscellaneous bits and pieces. And uh, it was getting kind of tiring because it wasn't the stuff that it, you really couldn't put much into it. It wasn't real characters, personality or acting. It was just little bits, little gags right. you're doing. Sure. And I was getting a little tired. So, so at that time, I was contacted by someone who was starting a movie. There was a Japanese company that was starting a movie, Little Nemo in Slumberland. Yeah. And he he asked, I, I knew him from, met, had met him some other times, and he asked if I wanted to leave Disney and join this Japanese thing. And I said, well, no, I don't want to leave Disney. Thank you very much. But, you know, it's, it's not, I'm going to build my career here. So he said, Okay, what, what we can do is, uh, if you come over for two weeks, spend one week training the animators in Japan, then you'll have one week to to travel, do whatever you want, and we'll pay for the whole thing. So two-week free vacation in Japan. So I, well, that's too good to pass up. I, you know, I couldn't pass that up. So I did. I, I did that one over there, spent a week giving some lessons in animation to the animators there. Now, did you did you take a vacation? Did you say, hey, I'm yes. going to take a two week vacation? Yeah, it was just a two week Everybody's vacation. like, hey, where do you go? What are you doing? Oh, I'm going to go to Japan go on to vacation. Japan. Yeah. And that's yeah. all they needed to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I did did that. And then, then but while I was there, I kind of fell in love with Japan. I thought, wow. Yeah, it's a beautiful An opportunity country. Opportunity to actually live here, and you know, in this, you know, experience this whole different world, uh, and so by the time they were done, uh, I was done with the trip. Uh, everybody had talked about how great it would be to have me there every day and come in and all, and so I finally decided uh, since Calderon was going so bad and there wasn't anything that was really grabbing me at work, we didn't know when. Basil Baker Street would come together. I decided, and, well, I'm take a chance and go. And did you did you during that period of all these little things? Were you doing some experimental animation on Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Did you do anything? Oh yeah, there's there there's one little bit of that. Yeah, it, so, they were starting up Roger Rabbit, and um, I did two uh, two scenes combining with. Uh, the animation with some live action that they shot, experimental animation. Uh, Roger Rabbit's voice was Pee Wee Herman at the time. <laughs> oh, Paul Rubens. Yeah, Paul Rubens. Wow. So we, uh, yeah, I did did a couple of scenes. I did one with Roger. and Oh, I did three. I did Roger. I did one with uh, a detective character that was never in the final film. And I did one scene with Baby Herman and his martini. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, those uh, we did those. But then the movie was kind of closed down because it looked like it was going to be too expensive. And it was until several years later that yeah. uh, it was revived and turned into a final movie that it was. But yeah, so so, so, so after all of that, you, you, you decide to leave Disney and go to Japan. Were, were people shocked yeah. that you quit? Um, 
No, because there was it was such a dark. Uh, I mean, everybody was kind of down because Cauldron was not going well, and nothing else was coming together. And a lot of people were talking about, "I wish I wasn't working here. I wish there was somewhere else to go." Yeah, yeah. really not a terribly great time. I did a um, a whole movie my last day at Disney. Was that the was that the eight millimeter with Ron Ron Miller coming out of the animation building? Well, that that one I did in 1980. That was really okay. because right. I, I did that one because I had a brand new camera and I wanted to test it out. And so yeah, I had this and the, but I did the same thing again. And John Lasseter filmed both of them. Uh, my last day when I when I told Ed Hansen I I was going wanted to leave for Japan. He said, well, it's a great opportunity. I can understand. And so anytime you're ready to come back, we'll be glad to have you back. But oh, that was nice of him. He was really positive about it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like I say, it was it, it was kind of a gloomy time at the studio. So yeah, I, no, I, I, there was a lot going on with the company. You know, oh, the, yeah. uh, Roy, Roy Disney had resigned from the board of directors mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was the takeover. The, the there was this. Saul Steinberg was trying yeah. to take it over, and then you know there was the the uh, Bass Brothers from Texas that came yeah. in as White Knights, and then the ouster of Ron Miller and that regime, and the yeah. the bringing in Michael Eisner and Frank Wells and Jeffrey Katzenberg. So there was a lot of turmoil. Nobody knew what was really going to be going on, and yeah. and it was a bit gloomy. Yeah, so I saw all of that from a distance. Yeah, <laughs> I left just before that happened, and so I was—I saw all that while I was reading it on the news in Japan. So, and, and how long were you in Japan for? How long did you uh, live there? About two years. It wow. was a, a, an amazing life experience, and I met my li- my wife there. We met and <laughs> married in Japan. So, uh, and, and I, did you uh, did you learn the language while you were there? Yeah, I studied a lot of the language. When I first met my wife, uh, she knew hardly any English, so we spoke only Japanese. Wow. When we came back to the U.S., we had to switch because she needed to learn English, so we've been speaking English for the most part. And and do you still know some Japanese? Do you speak Um, Japanese together? Skoshi, wakarimasu now. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I've forgotten a lot, but uh, yeah, I do a lot. But it was... um, yeah, but it was it was a great life experience, a stupid work experience. The whole time I was there, they never decided on the story. I gave tests to the animators, and then we did more tests for the animators, and we took them all the way to ink and paint and camera, the, the little pencil test they did, and then there was still no story to work on. And so uh, finally, after two years, there was no story anywhere <laughs> Uh, it was going to happen with the thing. So I finally went back and we left. And, and did they ever finish the movie? They finally did. Uh, the The money from the movie was coming from a, a, a loan company that was run by the Yakuza, which is the Japanese yeah. mafia. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they were paying for the movie because they wanted a cartoon character as their logo to kind of lighten their image. They were getting a very dark image for their loan company. <laughs> And this thing had been going on for years and nothing happened. So finally, the mafia or the Yakuza told the head of the studio, you're going to finish this immediately or you're going to be in the bottom of Tokyo Bay. 
And so <laughs> in within uh, like a year, the movie was finished. Wow. <laughs> and that's what that, that's the uh, Little Nemo Slumberland. That, uh, oh, that my gosh. So when you come back to Los Angeles and what mm-hmm. did you do? Well, before leaving uh, Disney, I uh, I Jerry Reese and Bill Croyer were friends of mine, and they were working on Tron at the time. Yeah. Well, I go over there and visit and got fascinated with the computer stuff they're doing and started to, Jerry and I fiddled with one of the computers they had there and did some little graphics on it that we, it took us a while to figure it out, but we we did it. And I thought, wow, this is going to change everything. I better start learning about this. So I went out and bought, uh, this is like 1982, quite a bit. Before I left, I left in 83, 84. Okay. Uh, but um, so I went out and bought an Atari computer and started to learn programming. You know, back then, you had to program in order to use the computer. There was no very few, very little automatic stuff there. Right, right. And I kind of kind of became a hobby and I became, just loved fiddling with the computer. So um, in Japan, I was... I uh, had the computer and was doing more. I wanted to do a pencil test system. I never quite got it working back then, uh, a digital one. Uh, and, oh, after Japan, I, I worked on Brave Little Toaster, went to Taiwan for six months, uh, and Jerry Reese was the director of the movie. Right. And, how was how was that experience? Oh, it was actually exhausting because it was such a high pressure because we had to do it real quickly. We had a whole budget of $2 million for the whole movie. Right. <laughs> Everybody had to do like two weeks of regular animation in a day, every day. So we really had to crank to get that thing out. Uh, but Jerry was also, because he worked on Tron, was also interested in animation and in, in computers. And so we brainstormed a whole bunch of things that would be great for computers to do for animation on ink and paint and cameras and things that we could do. And we had this thing, I thought, boy, great, if we could do this someday. So when I came back to Disney, I asked uh, if there was any jobs that were related to computers. That's kind of my hobby, and I'd be interested in getting involved in that some. They were just getting ready to... Uh, develop a uh, digital ink and paint system that Roy Disney wanted to do, the CAPS system. And they were looking for an artist to get involved in the computer team. So uh, right at the right time, I came in there and I became the the uh, creative head of the production. And, and all those ideas that Jerry and I had come up with all got implemented into the system. <laughs> And, and that was, and, and just so our listeners know, when Caps was being developed, it was being developed with Pixar. Yes, Pixar, and, is- and Pixar was a hardware company at that time. Yes, they were. They, they actually made graphic computers. Yes, they had a graphic computer. I had to learn to program it in order to do some things on it. I went, took a lesson up there on programming uh, the thing to to figure out how to what it could do and. Kind of help advise all the the uh, the computer guys on how to do it. Um, the um, so I would kind of do, tell them what the requirements were, what kind of things we needed as artists to do, and also I would design the whole interface, the art way the artists interacted with the computer system, the, the user interface, the on user the interface, yeah. yeah, and then they would do all the behind the scenes uh, programming of, of the stuff of the thing. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was really 
really fascinating. At the time, there was no Photoshop. There was nothing like that. Right. All the only computer graphics that you could have were very simple eight bit, you know, blocky things. Yeah. Uh, and so this was like no one had ever seen anything. There were no digital systems like this at all. So uh, I was on that for actually it took up four years before we got that before I finished up on that. Sure. We um, the f very first scene was we tested it on one scene on the Little Mermaid. The the very end scene where all the mer people are waving to the yes, and and the boat's going yeah. away and the yeah. rainbow appears. Well, I, I painted that whole scene because I was the only person that knew how to do it at the time. It was being developed. I painted the scene and painted the rainbow and made, had we could have the rainbow blur out, which would normally be a fairly complicated thing, but it was real simple to do in computer. Traditionally, yeah. it would have been very difficult. Uh, and I did. I, I made sure I to find out what colors were in a rainbow. I did that and painted it. And then when I saw the final film, I all of a sudden realized uh, red is on the top and purple is on the bottom. Well, I had painted red on the bottom and purple on the top. And so forevermore, the rainbow's upside down on uh, Little Mermaid because <laughs> I, my mistake. <laughs> well, you know something? I, I, I had always known that that last scene was uh, the first scene done in Caps. Yep. And, and then the next movie, which was The Rescuers Down Under. Yes. Was... Yep was the first feature to be done in the cap system. And yeah, how, uh, what, how, how challenging was that to, to, to say we're doing, we're switching everybody over and we're doing it on, yeah. you know, this movie. Well, we, we were still in development when, and we thought, well, they're doing these Roger rabbit shorts. Let's take one of these shorts and do that to try to develop the system. That would be a more reasonable way to do it. Peter Schneider said, nope, nope, we're going to do it for the whole feature and forced everybody to jump in and do a full feature on this thing. And it wasn't ready. So it, we just uh, jumped in and did it the best we could. And, and it turned out really well. But I mean, you know, it, it, sometimes it's sort of like the John Wayne school of swimming. You throw everybody in the deep end yeah, and tell them exactly. to start swimming. You know what I mean? Yeah, there, there was uh, actually one time we 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 had these two printers, uh, digital printers that we had, and they had been they were used actually by another company and Disney yeah. had bought them, but they worked fine. But all of a sudden, we they noticed on some of the shots there was like this screen on top of a lot of a lot of the shots, and they didn't know where it was coming from. The, and so we went through and analyzed all the programs. They couldn't find anything wrong with that. Uh, and they had a since they these these shots could hardly be used. They looked terrible, and right. they were coming through the system. So they got all the top computer experts in the in the country to come over one night. Very top guys from colleges and development companies all over. They had to work after hours after the studio closed down because they were still doing the production. And so they spent all night, one night, going through every part of the system to find out what the problem was. And by the morning, they didn't know. Nobody could find where the problem was coming from. And they had all getting more and more footage they couldn't use or, or looked just terrible. Um, finally, 
they discovered that the light was going out on one of the printers. That's what the problem was. Ah. It wasn't because it had been used. Uh, and when they switched that light, uh, all the stuff came out fine. So they did that and they started to reshoot the shots that were bad, but they didn't have time to reshoot all of them. So the first release of the rescuers, there are a handful of shots that have this strange kind of screen on, on top of them. Wow. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. That is absolutely amazing. And, you know, as soon as they could, they replaced those shots. So I don't know if you'll be able to find them anymore, but... Yeah, that but, was. Uh, and, and so with, with the cap system, uh, that was put up for uh, a scientific and technical award. And, and you won yep. an Academy Award yep. as part uh, of that got, team, right? Yep. I've got one of the Academy Technical Awards on my uh, on my bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know something? I <clears throat> I kind of feel like this is probably sort of a good place for us to sort of stop for part one. Uh, and uh, and I I would say thank you very much for being here, uh, and I look forward to having you come back next week here on the Skull Rock Podcast. Okay. Okay, sounds fine. Skull Rock Podcast. Oh, infinity and beyond. Exploring the outer reaches of the Disney Galaxy. Oh, wow, you flew magnificently. Oh, once again, awesome, awesome interview with our friend, our friend, Randy Cartwright. This is just part one of two. So next week we'll hear part two of uh, of his interview or sit-down interview with Dave. I hope you've enjoyed the show thus far. It's been amazing. Once again, it's been every single week with you hanging out and talking about everything we love in terms of film, animation, streaming, and pop culture. If you love the show, once again, a quick reminder to please give us that like, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Give us those five-star reviews. You think we'd earned it, and I'd love to read those reviews on an upcoming episode of Skull Rock Podcast. Send us your show ideas and comments. Everything you got, just send it to us. Dave at Aljohn, uh, Dave or Aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com. We'd appreciate that. Feel free to shoot us those emails. You can even leave us voicemail as well. If you check out in the show notes, you can leave us voicemail using that link on our Spotify for Podcasters app. So please uh, just go ahead and hit send us voicemail. We would love to hear from you. Big shout out to our friends there at the Swartzer Radio Network and srsounds.com, all Disney music all day long. Our sister show, my sister show that I produce with my wife, Kristen. Please check it out. It is Dining at Disney. If you love information on the latest iteration of the Disney dining plan for Walt Disney World, you want to check out this week's episode. I think you're going to love it. I think you're going to love it. And uh, you can also find me on Instagram as well at Go on Instagram and our entire vault of shows as well. We'd love to hear from you on social media. Uh, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, if you will. That's the best place to find us, Twitter. And that's awesome. Now we're going to hear once again from AI Dave. Well, there you go. We have another great show. Uh, Randy is just absolutely fantastic. We're going to be back next week with part two of his interview. And again, lots of crazy and great stories. Can't wait to uh, get to part two. Uh, but in the meantime, 
you know, check out my website, davidbosser.com. Uh, go to theoldmillpress.com uh, where you can get some uh, autographed copies of my books. And, uh, you know, I, I, all I can say is I'm having a fantastic time here in the City of Lights. And I know we have, we have listeners all around Europe. Uh, so all I can say is uh, go out, have a fantastic week wherever you are, and we'll see you back here next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. Au revoir. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com. <laughs>